People who play in this sport are subjected to the potential of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It is part of the nature of this game. And what you saw was exactly zero sympathy on the part of this doctor. I mean, you've got a parent there. How would you like to be the parent of this kid? All right. It's July 2018. Uh, in fact, Rick and I are recording uh, the weekend before July 4th. So happy July 4th to you, Rick. Uh, here in Michigan, the ice is almost completely melted <laughs> off the Great Lakes, and uh, so we're ready for summer. You know, here in Michigan, you got to take it when you get it, and s- summer is actually going to come on Tuesday this year, and we're all excited. Uh, it's going to uh, last one day, and then you're going to be in fall. I'll tell you what, I'm in Los Angeles right now, and it is absolutely gorgeous. It's in the 80s. There's not a cloud in the sky. There's not going to be any rain, and because it's so nice, I feel compelled to go to uh, visit my uh, son in uh, Phoenix tomorrow, where it is 105, and it's been 105 all week, and it's going to go higher than that. And you talk about miserable. 105 is not good. Rick, we don't even have thermometers that measure that warm here (laughs) in Michigan. We have no reason to own one. Well, we have the the extended range thermometers. They cost a little extra, you know, to get those other 20 degrees. All right, so let's get on with the program for today. We've got a lot of good stuff. I want to get the first uh, uh, article here, which is the informed consent question. Uh, There is a 2017 decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and it was a split decision, four to three, that found that a physician may not fulfill through an intermediary the duty to provide sufficient information to obtain a patient's consent. This is, for those of you who want to look this up, it's Chanel versus Tom's. And in this case, here's the important part of this uh, decision, is that what it points out, and it was written up in, uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, June 20th, It points out that uh, doctors need to be concerned about this. Now, there are plenty of physicians who think this is a wrong decision, Rick. They think that your intermediary, uh, and not not stating whether that's a PA, an NP, uh, a, a nurse assistant, whoever it is, not saying that these people haven't done a good job in the past, what the court is saying that you do not fulfill your obligation. And what this means is uh, we can't send somebody into the room to get them to quote unquote sign the consent. And we've, we've all heard this for the last almost 50 years. Here, have somebody sign the consent. Well, what the court is saying is not so fast. Maybe if you're the doc doing the procedure, doing the spinal tap, doing the central line, maybe you ought to talk to the patient uh, and get their consent to do the procedure. Well, the idea here is uh, uh, several generations from have the nurse have them assign the consent. We don't do that. We haven't done that for a long time. I, I, we have kind of gotten uh, aware that 
patients need to be able to answer questions back and forth with you, uh, look at the alternatives, et cetera, et cetera, with regards to a procedure that's being performed. But in this case, it was done by a, a PA. And so the, the PA is supposedly knowledgeable. It works for the uh, PA works for the uh, physician and uh, is familiar with the procedures, et cetera. But this was a complex surgical case where there was uh, the opportunity to choose one version over another version with regards to what ought to be done. And this person, uh, Chanel, basically claimed that uh, had this decision, had her decision been able to be done under the uh, uh, guidance of the physician that she would have made a different decision. Uh, this is kind of a big deal because this says PAs and NPs cannot go in and, at least in the state of Pennsylvania, cannot go in and, and ask for consents for surgical procedures that are being done by somebody else, uh, yeah. another physician. And, and this, this is, go ahead. Now, this is going to be used as a pretext if there's any problem with the procedure, uh, all plaintiff's attorneys are going to reference this case and say, look, Pennsylvania thinks you have a right to talk to the, the, the boss, uh, the person whose provider number is being used for the billing. And that is a key issue. If it's your provider number that's used for the billing, you're going to take the money. Maybe you, you ought to provide at least part of that service. And I think that this isn't for the average starting an IV line uh, or maybe even draining an abscess. But if you're going to do a more complex procedure or there are multiple ways to handle the case, for example, some people with pneumonia are sent home. Some are admitted to the hospital. Maybe some of those discussions should be with the clinician dis making the decisions as to what's going to be done. Uh, you know, I think that this might be viewed as a little over the top, and the people who objected to it, which were multiple people objected to this and wrote yes. things that, uh, about uh, their concerns, they basically are saying, you know, this is a collaborative endeavor, there are multiple people involved, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road, I do think that the surgeon does need to be the one who's ultimately getting uh, the consent, who is ultimately giving the person the uh, options of what they do, that what can be done, what are the um, choices if we do nothing, how about just antibiotics instead of an IND, you know, how, how minor a procedure this gets to be is, um, you know, we don't, we don't know. Uh, isn't an abscess something that would require the verbal consent of the patient by the person who's going to be doing the abscess, whether that be an NP or a PA? It doesn't have to be a physician who's doing the procedure. What isn't answered by this case, Rick, is, uh, and this one had a surgeon involved, is what if this is a procedure which is usually and customarily done by the the clinician, uh, doctor or non-doctor, if it's a non-doctor, but they usually and customarily do these procedures for which they have credentials. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's what I'm getting the at. issue. I'm, yes. getting, I'm getting at the point that if a PA is about to do an uh, IND, that there is this conversation about, well, uh, 
we should do the IND, but you should know that there's another option uh, uh, that I don't think necessarily is good, but we can give you some antibiotics and maybe that will, you know, resolve this infection as well. So that here, here are your choices, or we could do nothing and let your own immune system kind of deal with this thing. So by, bottom line, those are the issues in informed consent, telling them what you want to do, telling them the uh, alternatives to what you do, want to do, and the, and the uh, option of doing nothing. The other thing that came up in this case is that people in Pennsylvania, at least, are getting pretty sensitive to this um, decision to the point where institutional review review boards are requiring that informed consent for clinical studies only be provided by a physician. You're coming into a clinical study. We're going to try this medicine versus that medicine. Uh, you, uh, one of these medicines is a placebo. The other is not. Are you willing to do that? Apparently, people are feeling that this needs to be presented by a physician, which I think is a little over the top. The whole point of this was, and the reason it made the New England Journal, is that it may be a precedent for other uh, states to start picking this up. Yeah, I think that uh, at least my experience over the last 40-some years of doing these cases is if one or two states start it, now when there's a, a medical legal question in another state, it gets referenced virtually every time. So, uh, we're putting you listeners ahead of the curb on this. Make sure you understand what your institution is going to require of any of this, uh, of the obtainings of uh, consent. All right, Rick, you want to do the uh, caps on malpractice out payouts? Yeah, this was a really interesting article. I, it's the f- first article that has shown that caps on awards for uh, malpractice have resulted in physicians uh, changing their practice. Um, it's entitled Association of Medical Liability Reform with Clini- Clinician Approach in uh, Coronary Artery Disease Management. It was published in uh, JAMA Cardiology Online June 6th. And uh, what they looked at is uh, nine states that have caps on pain and suffering Looking at what doctors do in those states to evaluate cardiac suspected chest pain with the 20 states where there are no caps. And these are recent caps because California's had a cap forever and ever and ever, and so you would not be able to show any change here. But these nine states, recent caps, pain and suffering, compared to 20 states who don't have uh, caps on pain and suffering, they looked at a huge number of cardiologists and what they do. Uh, specifically, they looked at over 36,000 cardiologists in states where they had these new caps on pain and suffering, comparing them to 39,000 cardiologists in states where they don't. And uh, lo and behold, in what they call the new cap physicians, they reduced their invasive testing and geography particularly as a first diagnostic test compared with control physicians by 24%. Decreased, Greg, in angiography by 24%. Unbelievable, unbelievable. I would have thought if it was going to be anything, it would just be a kind of a marginal difference. There was an offset increase in non-invasive t- uh, stress testing. Non-invasive stress testing went up 
about 8%. Fewer patients were referred for angiography following a stress test. How many fewer? 21% fewer. New cap physicians also reduced revascularization rates after ischemic evaluations by, again, 23%. This paper shows substantial changes in physician behavior after a cap was placed on pain and suffering, at least when it comes to the evaluation of suspected cardiogenic chest pain. This is the first study that has ever demonstrated that. Uh, so this is history in the making here. Right. I, I don't think we can draw a straight line uh, because if you have something happen and say, well, it had to be because of this, I think it's a part of it. But in general, there has been a move in cardiology in the last five years to do less of those procedures. Certainly at my own state, which has had various kinds of caps, uh, there's been a decrease in the number of the procedures. If you look back across this timeline, it's going down. So although I'd like to agree with you that I, I would like to believe that the caps are the cause, I think it might be part of multiple things which are happening at the same time. Well, those multiple things that are happening at the same time, you would think would affect the entire United States. Uh, there, there, there is a trend, and it was it would be a national trend. But this shows that there's a market difference in the states where new caps have been in, put in place in terms of physician behavior. And it's kind of interesting, too, because in our fee-for-service world, the idea of doing less procedures is kind of... Um, interesting that this is occurring. Because well, I, I think that what you really have to look at is take the same group of patients, type of patients, and compare them to England or uh, uh, Sweden or someplace where the physician does not stand to profit from doing the procedure. I wonder what the procedural rates are in those countries. Uh, I, I honestly believe that there are multiple factors that are involved here, but um, I, I, I like the conclusion from this paper. I'm just, uh, I'm just being a little, a little uh, poopy about accepting it as gospel that this is going to work. Although uh, it, it certainly does point in the right direction. Yeah, I, I agree. Um... I was startled by the magnitude of the changes uh, noted in this paper. Right. All right. I, I love the next. I love the next thing we're gonna do because it involves a friend of ours. That's Bill Sullivan, uh, who's an MD and a, or a DO and a JD, and he's writing in in EP Monthly, some uh, a magazine you and I have been associated with for many years. And I, if you read the June 18th issue, 2018 issue, uh, it is a short, sweet bit about the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons deciding that expert testimony was beyond the pale. Uh, and and um, I think it's worthwhile going through the background of this. A, uh, an, a, an orthopedic surgeon gave expert testimony, uh, which was considered by the board 
of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons to be beyond the pale. It was not consistent with the scientific evidence currently at hand. What they did was they took an action, published action, uh, against this doctor and and there was a, a censure performed. Now, this doctor said, wait a minute, uh, not, you are then forced by the current rules to report me uh, to, to the... Uh, to the, to the board, they have to send out information not only to the state board, of which this doctor is a member, but, but the uh, national uh, board, practitioner's uh, board, and they have to be registered. So he wrote a letter back to the federal government and said, this isn't right, and I demand that this negative report be removed from my files. So the lawsuit is interesting. It's not against just another person. It's against the federal government. So this is a federal case. And the case, uh, which is, is now going to be quoted everywhere, basically said this. Uh, they, they said, we demand on a First Amendment basis. And I have an interest in the First Amendment. The First Amendment doesn't protect you from retribution. The First Amendment says you can say it, but it doesn't say that there aren't going to be consequences. And basically what the federal court uh, said was that, uh, no, the data bank does not have to remove something because you say so. It is a part of your official record. And so go stick it up your nose, basically. It's going to stay a part of the record and that you have to live with this. Also, it stated that you joined this organization. You knew the rules of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. You were aware that they review testimony. And no, they're not, com- they're not going to sanction the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons because they did their duty, which which was to report uh, aberrant uh, testimony. Everybody thinks that the National Practitioner's Data Bank is just for malpractice cases that you committed. No. All kinds of things which are out of of, uh, the realm of normal medical practice need to be reported to the National Practitioner's Data Bank and that's what happened in this case. So basically, the federal government prevailed. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons prevailed. And this is another uh, nail in the coffin of those guys who think they can testify and people aren't going to do something about it. There are a couple of uh, nuances here. This fellow was given <clears throat> multiple opportunities to explain uh why he believes his testimony was correct, and right. he uh, did not uh, show up apparently or make a, some argument in his behalf. Mm-hmm. So the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons said, "You know, we gave you the opportunity. You didn't explain it. We think that your testimony was wacko, and uh, we we are obligated to report it." I didn't know honestly that this was an obligation. 
it is an obligation. There's a $25,000 fine if you don't, uh, don't do this. I thought the data bank was about uh, malpractice settlements and the like. It also includes uh, not only these sanctu- uh, sanctions, but it includes um, unprofessional behavior. And talk about a slippery slope. Unprofessional behavior is often in the eye of the beholder kind of thing. Well, are the- Rick, if for just one second, if you've been convicted of a felony, we're not talking about a traffic ticket here, but if you've been convicted of a felony, for example, uh, misuse of drugs in a state or uh, mistreatment of a patient or anything which it causes the medical board to take an action like remove your license, the state medical board is then also required to report you and your number to the to the National Practitioners Data Bank. Well, so, I'm talking about uh, things that are much more subtle. These uh, allegations of unprofessional behavior are uh, relate to, and in fact, there was an example of uh, some surgeon going uh, nutso in the operating room, uh, berating the nurses. Uh, uh, I don't know that it got into the throwing of instruments, but it was considered clearly unprofessional behavior. It went up the uh, chain of command, and this got into the National Practitioner Data Bank as well. And uh, and the slippery slope here is you can't get that stuff out. Um, whether it was or was not non- unprofessional behavior, it may be something that is... Um, Maybe it was justified. Maybe somebody was doing something that resulted in you you're acting up. Yeah, Rick, I, I don't want to sound like an apologist for, for the system, but it wasn't a nurse from the operating room who called and reported it to the data bank. It went up through the hospital's disciplinary system uh, and through the executive committee of the hospital and a bunch of other things. It it isn't that this is a he said, she said question where where we can sort of blackball you with no proof. I, I think that sometimes there is some truth in what's reported to the to the data bank. The other thing is, is that organizations that uh, review physician behavior, um, there is immunity for these organizations and those who participate in these uh in these hearings, the Healthcare uh, Quality Improvement Act, uh, quote unquote, says uh, these review bodies and those t- taking part shall not be liable in, uh, for damages under any law of the United States or any state with respect to this action. So you have protection, which I also didn't know that you uh, you had. So the whole thing is kind of interesting in terms of. What can get into the National Practitioner Data Bank? And um, it's much more than I, uh, than I thought. And there is clearly some obligation to report this that, that is pretty substantial. Let me take this down to the state level, too. Most states have passed laws which say if you're a physician working on a hospital committee, quality assurance, that sort of thing, you cannot be held personally liable for the findings of that committee. Uh, People were going around saying, well, what if this doctor sues me because I 
suspected he was using drugs or I thought his behavior was unusual. Um, I think physicians have to act with a little bit of courage here. And the good news is virtually every state has taken some action to protect uh, members of those committees. And, and that is important because if we're going to police ourselves, I promise you, if we don't police ourselves, somebody else who you don't like is going to do it for you. I, I, I would rather a, a group of physicians at the hospital or the medical society did the action than somebody appointed by the government. We have a Horty Springer case. This was uh, sent to us by Mike Ritter. Yep. It's also very short and sweet. It's a trauma victim who lost his legs after a severe car accident. He sued the hospital and uh, under Mtala, he also sued as well because he claimed that Failure to stabilize his medical condition after he was admitted occurred. It had to do with the delayed arrival of a surgeon to take care of his legs. And uh, so basically said, no, 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 no. This patient was admitted to the hospital. Mtala ends after you are admitted to the hospital. So, yes, there might have been a delay, it had to do with that surgeon, but this is not an entire action. Mike pointed out, however, and it was not in the Horty Springer uh, uh, discussion, Review, right. yeah. that patients admitted to observation are not admitted to the hospital and still are under uh, EMTALA provisions. So, uh, And I think that that makes sense because patients in observation, I know Medicare patients are Build as outpatients, and one of the problems with that is is that they can get a nice hefty bill for being in observation. When if they were in the hospital, that bill would not uh, be uh, anything similar. So that being the case, it helps affirm that patients who are admitted to observation are not considered to be admitted to the hospital, and until is uh, inoperant. And if you know to the contrary please let us know because I think that uh, this is a distinction that I was not aware of in the past. By the way, the fact that the patient wasn't considered uh, eligible for EMTALA protection in no way stops the rest of this action. Oh, yeah. That, that is, uh, if the surgeon was late in coming, if there was a miscommunication between the doctors, all of those are still actionable problems, which the physician needs to be aware of. Because it isn't Amtala, and Amtala says this right in it, this law in no way uh, covers up for, supersedes, or relieves your obligation under usual and customary civil action. So because it's not Amtala doesn't mean it's still not going to be a, a losing lawsuit for someone. And I, I think you should keep that in mind, that uh, f uh, surgeon arrival, uh, late review of the x-ray, all these various things are still problems, even if they aren't MTALA violations. Uh, want me to do next one, Greg? Sure, do it. This is an article that I found really interesting. I'm not sure... Sure, it's a direct hit on emergency medicine, but I think you should consider it because I know that some physicians where this applies. 
This is an article entitled a Medical Legal Sidebar Serving on the Sidelines of the American Football Dilemma. And it was in a journal called uh, Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research. It was published online February 13th, 2018. And the article talks about the ethical and legal issues regarding being the team physician for a professional football team. So this is, this is about professional football teams. However, I believe that there is some extrapolation to the concerns voiced in this paper to being the physician of a college football team or take it one step further, the physician of a high school football team. And just as soon as you've made your point on this, I have a recent case about a high school football player. So go ahead, Rick, make the point. Well, the editors of the uh, this journal have gotten together and said, we have some ethical issues with a physician being uh, paid uh, or compensated in some way to be the team physician. And uh, we're concerned about the tension between the relationship between a patient and his physician and the physician and the team and its leadership and winning the game and those kinds of things. And um, they're specifically talking about the duty of physicians to warn players of this chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy kind of thing that they can get. And um, there have been successful cases where physicians have been sued who have not only had had players develop this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but there was a case where somebody had an anterior cruciate ligament uh, injury and the physician was accused of not adequately advising what the consequences of this injury were, allowed a player to continue to play, etc., and there was a substantial settlement. Uh, These people, are these editors are to the point where they're saying that they think that orthopedists should probably refrain from being team physicians because of the ethical conflict here that is inherent in their job. Because every one of these players is subjected to this chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So you see these conversations where mothers and fathers now are saying, I don't want my kid to play high school football uh, because of this, because they may have four years of batting their head around, or college football certainly is 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 the same. So this is a an unusual uh, article, that's for sure. But there is legal um, liability associated with being a team physician that I was not nearly uh, familiar with. Well, I I got exposed to it very early here in in Ann Arbor. We have, uh, of course, there's a half a dozen physicians on the sideline at any. Big Ten football game. They're always going to be orthopedists. We had one orthopedist who was sued by a player because he didn't make it into the National Football League, claiming that if he had been kept out of the games for, you know, six or eight more weeks, he wouldn't have needed such an extensive surgery on his knee, and he would have gone on to a, you know, $20 million uh, contract. So they sued. The basis of the suit was the average running back in the National Football League for five years. That was going to be the basis of the suit. 
I, th- I think that at some point this can get crazy. But l- let me give you an actual case. And this has to do with not professional, semi-professional, big college, small college. This is high school. This is an alleged negligent clearance of patient to resume football after concussion injury. Absolutely. And this is called the second impact syndrome. And if when you hear this case, it doesn't put a little tiny bit of stool in your pants, you're not paying attention. Uh, We did have a uh, 16-year-old player, high school uh, football player, who uh, about a week prior to the big event uh, had had his quote-unquote bell rung and uh, came to a uh, to an emergency department where they diagnosed him with concussion. He did not return to school for a couple of days. So he played on Friday night, missed Monday and Tuesday at school. The doctor told the, the, the child not to play football until really it was two weeks later. Uh, unfortunately, on September 10th, uh, the patient was given an impact, that's a trade name, test, for uh, neurocognitive assessment by one of the, uh, not one of the physicians, but by one of the trainers. And the coach was told, quote unquote, he's okay concussion-wise to go back onto the field. Fortunately, the emergency doc in the in the emergency department had his date on the uh, uh, on the chart. Now, on September twelfth, this sixteen-year-old was playing. They put him back in the game, and he collapsed during halftime. Uh, he was brought to the uh, defendant's hospital's emergency room, and needed an immediate craniotomy. This is in one of our far-flung western states where getting a craniotomy done, there may be two towns or three towns in the state of Montana which can actually open the head. So as you might imagine, there was a little delay, and worse than died, he's quadriplegic uh, from, from what happened. Now, Uh, In the trial that went on, various people are named the school district, the emergency doctor, the trainer, the coach, uh, probably the coach's mother for having a guy that dumb, you know, all the things that can happen here. But But they viewed this as a string of events that should have never taken place. And they brought out a series of big time experts on this. Bottom line is this set it's called the second impact syndrome that you get a worse injury if you've got a little something down there and within the next short period of time you get hit again so they were they were charged with causing this second impact syndrome uh they can fight about the science of this but the bottom line here is that if you're an emergency doc and someone's pressuring you to put some kid back in the game, don't even think about it. You know, concussion and immediately putting some kid back in the game, not a good idea. 
you should have a system worked out uh, where those people come in and they're cleared by somebody who knows what they're doing down the line. It's just crazy, and I've had that happen. I've had people brought during the game into the emergency department, and there's an anxious father and mother who want me to clear them to go back into the game. And the kids, you know, and by the way, all these kids lie a lot. Do they want to get back in the game? Sure they do. So they'll tell you things. Say, yeah, well, the headache's gone. Or this is okay. Bottom line is if they thought enough of them to bring them into the emergency department because of a head injury, I wouldn't be sending that kid back into the game. Well, you know, this is pretty radical. The authors and, uh, pardon me, the editors of this journal took a position in 2017 supporting the proposition that orthopedists should exclude themselves as team physicians for football games. Well, I, I, I don't think they have to exclude themselves as long as there's going to be somebody else involved in the evaluation. I mean, I think orthopedic surgeons are perfectly look good to look at certain kinds of injuries. But you and I all remember the days when you were in high school. There was some guy, the family practitioner, who'd say, yeah, he's all right. <laughs> there was no testing done. There was no nothing. But this is not about concussions. That's, yeah. that, that is making the news, and there's tons and tons of articles about concussions and, and all the things that you're supposed to do. Not that it is an exact science by any means. But right. this is about this idea of the people who play in this sport are subjected to the potential of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It is, but it is part of the nature of this game, and yes. that is where they are concerned. That you have not advised your college, your players that this is a potential, whether it be high school, college, or pro. Um, I know it sounds a little radical. They also point out other things that have been done in the past, which have been considered egregious misbehavior by uh, team physicians, like the injection of steroids and uh, local anesthetics into joints. You've heard of that being done. Oh, absolutely. That is considered to be absolutely uh, a, a, a violation of the doctor-patient relationship. And, and, and so if we're going to pass something on to the emergency docs, though, who are listening to this, understand you have a conflict of roles here. Yes, exactly. It, it, Exactly. And so what? who is your obligation to if you're paid by the school district or the college or the university? What should be the focus? The focus needs to be the patient. Uh, I will say this, that all of that science is not totally clear, Rick, as to what second impact syndromes are, all these sorts of things. It's not clear, but why would you step out on a limb and have that kind of conflict of, of, of role or fact. And I wouldn't be the one from the emergency department who sends them back into play. There, there are people who specialize in this, and uh, that's what I would have them do. Yeah, I just want to make this distinction between concussion, second impact syndrome, those things, versus chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is just a routine part of beating your head against somebody else's head for years over, uh, years and years. Uh, by the way, the uh, it isn't just years and years. This week, 
the quarterback from uh, Washington State who committed suicide. Uh, I think he committed suicide about six months ago. The His brain was taken to the Mayo Clinic. They did an analysis of his brain, and this is a 21-year-old, Rick, uh, and said that he was having the beginnings of this uh, uh, traumatic uh, syndrome in his brain. Now, what is interesting is the parents have another child who is uh, five or six years younger, still in high school, I think, and they're still letting him play football. But they did point out that in this 21-year-old, he did have some of these changes. I, I think at some point in time, we've got to ask ourselves a question, a much bigger societal question. Uh, what's assumption of risk? I mean, what do we have to tell kids when they play this sport? And uh, I've also seen some reports of uh, uh, young women who play soccer and head the ball. Uh, of having had some, they now think, may get these chronic uh, brain injuries as well. So I think we beat that one to death. I thought it was extraordinarily interesting, and I I think that it certainly applies beyond uh, professional football. And your example, I think, makes it clear that this is college. It could be high school. It You know, it, it's just the idea of repetitively banging your head uh that is in, that has been documented unequivocally to exist. They show slices of the brain of these people who have donated their brain, who have had these um, syndromes, and they're like grossly different compared to uh, normal brains. But in any case, something yep. to, to consider. You want to do this um, email that we got about? Uh, well, let the, me do, let me do one more case here quickly. I want to I want to hit a case which emergency doctors are involved with peripherally all the time. And this was a suicide blamed on a lack of supervision. Uh, This was a patient, uh, a 47-year-old blind man, interestingly enough, with a history of physical and mental illness exacerbated by his use of alcohol and benzodiazepines, was admitted to a quote-unquote treatment center um, and underwent withdrawal. The patient was not carefully monitored, and they came in and found the patient had hung himself, committed suicide. Now, there's certainly a lot of talk in the last month about uh, suicide, the amount of it, all that sort of thing. But in the emergency department or in a treatment center, observation is key. Whether you're doing this with cameras, uh, whether they have to walk in the room, uh, I've seen cases uh, where there are suits because they didn't have the right kind of hinges on the door where you can't hook a cord, all that kind of stuff. Uh, If you're holding sight patients, and I talk to ER docs, every week who are keeping them 24 and 48 hours in the department because there's no place to send them. Understand the suicide and and, uh, the great joke when we were young in medicine, they'd all say, oh, those who talk about it never do it. That's not true. Uh, Those who talk about it do do it. And I think there needs to be in your department a pretty tight protocol if you're holding patients for psych. 
No argument here, man. Yep. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, uh, this is a California case, and it was $7 million down the drain. Uh, th- I think... I think this did inflame the jury uh, with regard to the question of, hey, what should you be doing in a place that says you can, you know, this didn't happen at home. This didn't happen in somebody's bedroom. This was in a place that's supposed to be watching sight patients. So I would kind of keep that one in mind. Yeah, there are all sorts of regulations about the observation of these patients who who can who's qualified to do it you know many places they you know stick the uh, the hospital guard at the door kind of thing um, the frequency by which these people need to be evaluated by clinicians this is all specified in all kinds of CMS kind of uh, regulations and it's a dangerous business there's no question about it when things go sour it's really easy to point uh, to the department you know the staff in the department the the rules regulations that are in the department that may be lacking because somebody's got to pay when something like this happens yeah there's a uh, a very interesting case uh, uh, which had to do with a failure to change iv lines at a certain time uh and the patient developed MRSA and then death and the, the plaintiff put this forward as what they call a per se violation. That is, by the virtue of the fact that you had a policy that says those lines and those catheters have to be changed every 48 hours sort of thing, you are by definition guilty. Now, could they actually prove that the portal for this MRSA was that line? Probably not. But the plaintiff put forward the argument that you had a policy. It says so right here. You actually sign, and we've all seen those uh, wounds where they where on the covering, they put the date and the time of when they put the thing in. Uh, and in this case, it had gone over the time limit and, uh, and caused... Uh, bacterial endocarditis and all the other things that go along with this and the patient's death uh, after uh, another four months of uh, misery. Uh, and again, uh, this, this went against the hospitals and the docs because they did not follow their own policy. God, if you have your own policy, it, get rid of it, change it, make it longer, but what you can't do is ignore your own quality assurance policies. You can't do it. Yeah, that's uh, one of the uh, reasons that maybe the, the fewer policies you have, the better. And it says, well, it's our general custom and practice to do this in about two to three days we change this thing. Rather than black and white, we, we, we change it uh, within 48 hours. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, there's nothing worse than having them read to you from the stand from <laughs> yes. your own They say, exactly. Doctor, will, will you read to the jury <laughs> what, and, and uh, I remember being the chairman of a department, and my signature is at the bottom of each of those policies we approved. And I think you, uh, I think you have to kind of take that uh, seriously. Well, you know, it's, it's not a good thing. That brings up a point that, 
we discussed a number of months ago where um, where it suggested that every new physician coming into a department would sign off, physically sign, um, the key policies in that department. Uh, and the, the one that specifically came up was the uh, mandatory reporting of suspected child abuse. Yes. And uh, because there was a big, big deal case, and one of the assertions was that this new doctor had not, uh, had missed this case and that uh, the threshold for making this call was, uh, was not there. And uh, the fact is that this doctor claimed that he was not aware of the policy. Now, uh, now everybody knows about ch- reporting child abuse, and that was kind of a lame excuse. But there are all kinds of other policies that are important in the department that new doctors may not know, and uh, that you don't want them to be in a position to say, I didn't know it. So it's suggested that if you have important policies, that when a new doctor's coming on board, they sign and say, I, I understand this policy, I understand that policy, I understand that policy. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I've always considered as a risk management tool that uh, every, when I was the department director, every month we would take two policies. And, and review them at the meeting, and those were signed off on. Just because when you're given 50 policies, Rick, you know, two days Oh, no, we're talking start, about key policies. Right, but you, but you won't know them uh, all. But we went through that damn book, and uh, over a period of two years, every policy was looked at again, and I can't tell you the number of times we found things in our own policies which we then decided to change or ask the hospital to modify simply because they use the wrong words, the wrong adjectives, this, that, or another thing, which would tend to get us in trouble. Yeah, you're going to paint yourself into a box with your in own policies. Box. Yeah, let me give you some good news. Uh, there's a, a, a case, uh, again, I watched the Michigan Court of Appeals pretty closely, McDonald versus Wentz Branch Regional Medical Center. Uh, An interesting decision. A physician is not qualified to act as a medical malpractice expert if more than 50% of his or her professional time is spent on administrative duties rather than the active practice or instruction of his or her field. Uh, this was this is a is good news for us because again we don't want a retired gynecologist from Cleveland or somebody who's been a uh, working for some administrative role coming in to tell us what is currently current in emergency medicine. This was an excellent decision. And it cut somebody out who was going to be an expert in a case uh, in in the question of emergency medicine. And I like it. It's a good thing. Yeah, no argument. Okay. Um, e- email. Rick, yeah, oh, my God. Rick, we have had a fair number of people writing in and... Um, I, I think we need to uh, we need to talk about this. Oh, uh, a quickie here. 
uh, Eva Briggs, who has been uh, communicating with me for years over medical legal issues here on the program, uh, sent me a, a key, and we will put it in the um, in your summary, how you get to it. Uh, but this had to do with a video taken by a patient's father, a young a man, probably early 20s or so, came into the emergency department, and is he hysterical? Yes. This doctor berates this uh, patient to the point of unbelievability. Now, is he hysterical? Probably. I always say probably because each one of us at some point in our career has called somebody psychiatric who wasn't. And uh, it's it could be a frightening thing, but I want you uh, to just go to your computer, bring up this this uh, location on YouTube, and listen to this discussion between the patient and the doctor. Uh, the patient is saying, "Well, I can't breathe," and the doctor's immediate response is, "You got a PO2 of a hundred percent, and you look like you're fine." Well, then you must be crazy because you can move. This, that, and other thing. You know what? Each one of us in our career is going to have a fair number of patients who have uh, psychosomatic illness. It happens. But what you can't do is beat the living hell out of them. And this is not being done in front of his father, who knows that the child has anxiety problems, that sort of thing. And what you saw was exactly zero sympathy on the part of this doctor. I mean, you've got a parent there. How would you like to be the parent of this kid and have to deal with this? Uh, this, is a great, this is a great teaching tool. I would copy this down and show it in your department because it's a wonderful teaching film. Well, you know, I I think it was a very sad video, and I think lots and lots of um, people have seen this video that went, quote-unquote, viral. And I hope a lot of emergency physicians have seen it because it's it's sad in that it it is a physician who basically has lost it. Uh, it's a physician who is clearly exasperated. It's a physician who I think probably is quite burned out, um, who would feel comfortable berating a, per, uh, a person when, in fact, a video is being taken of them in the, in the process. Now, I don't know whether this person knew a video was being taken, but it is, um, I, I don't think, it, frankly, it's amusing at all. I think it's really, really sad because this doctor was suspended, will probably uh, not likely get a job anywhere uh, soon, and uh, there's some a career on the line here because of this outburst, and it may not have been you know the first time that this physician has felt comfortable berating a patient, and it was um, it was it was bad. It was it was a doctor. You were watching a physician unravel in front of a patient. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was, and I, I. I don't think there's any question about the fact that every one of us has seen it. I remember as a very young doc at uh, Wayne County General Hospital, in near, which is Detroit's county, Wayne County, um, 
one of the senior residents came down when I, as a junior medical student, I had a gal in the emergency department who'd taken an overdose of medication. He was so mad that I disturbed his day by getting trying to get his help. First of all, he was mad at me not being man enough to just throw her out. But then he wrote down on a piece of paper and he says, this, this is how much Tylenol you have to take to kill yourself. Now, unless you take that much, don't bother me again. Uh, and got and steamed away. Now, I'm left as the junior medical student with this gal who obviously has emotional problems. And, you know, the problem is if they've, if they've had one sort of suicide attempt or gesture, if they don't get our attention this time, will they do it again? I think, yes, they might. And I, I, as I got further into my career, I realized how absolutely damning that interaction was. Because, you know, not everybody is simple. I mean, doctors tend to like disease that they can, without judgment, make better. Dislocated shoulders are perfect. Uh, you know, we can put their shoulder back in, they're fine. Uh, if they've got a heart attack, we can take them to the cath lab. They're fine. But these people are sick, too. And uh, if you're if going to be an emergency doc, you got to handle the entire crowd. And a lot of them, um, I probably did as much good in my career with the psychiatrically challenged patients as I did with the medically challenged patients. I'm sure I did. Let's do an email. Um, okay. This is... This is a um, interesting case. So basically, a person comes into the emergency department in the middle of the night with appendicitis. Yeah. Uh, there is a surgery group, Group A, uh, which is on call, and there's another surgery group in town, Group B, and they're on call just for their patients. Group A is on call for the uh, this appendicitis case. The uh, emergency physician calls the uh, physician on call. But but before that, the uh, patient says, if Dr. So-and-so is on call, I refuse to be treated by that doctor. Uh, that doctor is on call. The uh, emergency physician called that person and said, uh, the uh, patient doesn't want you to see them. Can we get another person in your group to take care of them? And uh, that surgeon said, uh, refused to call anybody else in the group to come in to handle the, handle the case. So our poor emergency physician now is left to hung out to dry here. Surgery group A is not responding because uh, this doctor is refusing to cooperate. He is offended by the fact that this patient does not want him to be his surgeon and is uh, acting uh, as uh, a, an annoyed, pissed-off person would. They, um, the uh, doctor decides to call the chief of staff. The chief of staff happens to be a um, member of Group B, and Group B, uh, Group B was called by the emergency physician. And Group B, the doctor said, "Listen, I'm not on call. Uh, you know, it's not our responsibility to handle this. Group A is on call. Let them handle this." So now our doctor is really in a quandary. Group A is not handling the problem. Group B is not handling the problem. There's nobody left. The doctor calls the chief of, uh, chief of staff, who's the head of Group B. 
Group B uh, says, listen, come on, help us out. Do, us, do me a favor. Go in there and see this patient. Doctor in Group B, who is not on call, goes in grumbling about seeing this patient in the middle of the night, is pissed off because he was uh, intimidated to go in by the, uh, his colleague in the group, who is probably a senior member of the group. And this emergency physician says, I have never had a good relationship with that doctor ever since that incident. And yep. what would we have done? Uh, uh, let me uh, jump in for just a second, Rick. Uh, the, the, the physician involved here is somebody who's listened to us for years, and uh, we are not going to use the name. But uh, this person has asked some very interesting questions one of those is she's she's putting it to Rick and I saying, what would you do here? It's basically ruined my relationship with this particular active, busy surgeon. And uh, the comment in, a, in the email to us was, we've never had the same ability to talk since that time. And I think that's crushing to some extent. Um, first of all, I think the surgeon is needs to have a little more of a sense of humor about this. Uh, but secondly, I think that that uh, this doctor tried to do the best they could for the patient, uh, and sometimes sometimes patients just aren't terribly cooperative. You know, I I don't know why they didn't want the the doctor who was on call that's not explained in any of this but uh i'll, I'll tell you when you're a, a doc working in a relatively small hospital and you if you have a bad relationship with an allergist who cares you never call them in but if you have a bad relationship with a general surgeon you call them in once or twice a shift it's kind of the way it is yeah uh one of the issues here was she asked which group is responsible for evaluating the patient i think it's pretty clear group a is responsible the doctor from group a is responsible because group a doctor would not accept the patient and group b doctor didn't want to take taking the, uh, the patient on is a transfer to another hospital appropriate would it be justified under EMTALA? Because right now we have a lack of the resources to take care of this patient, meaning that neither surgeon would come in. So that means we have a lack of resources. I'm sorry. I don't think that that uh, would justify an EMTALA-based transfer. No, no. It, it, it's very difficult because EMTALA, uh, under EMTALA, this physician has, uh, has called the correct specialty, this person understands they have the responsibility, and yet the patient doesn't want to accept the care, the help which is available. I mean, the hospital really has carried out its responsibility to provide somebody. Uh, so you could yes. take this. You could take this to craziness, Rick. And I had uh, I had a patient came in. Um, this was a, a devout Muslim family. And basically, the husband said to me, I want a female physician for my wife. Well, there was no female physician in the department at that moment. And I said, uh, I don't 
want there to be a delay here, but the next physician coming on is female, and that's in four hours. And so he said, well, you've got to get somebody in earlier. This I said, so what I did was I called that physician coming in, and they were able to come in within two hours, uh, come in. But we can't, we cannot necessarily supply everyone's needs all the time. We just can't do it. Well, I think that this physician did the uh, right thing, and I think that it's unfortunate that this doctor who uh, came in uh, is carrying this um, grudge and anger uh, because it was just an uh, unfortunate set of circumstances that resulted in this thing. Um, <laughs> Rick, she- unfortunate set of circumstances is how you define being in the emergency department. There is nothing clean about what we do. I mean, wouldn't ever, wouldn't it be nice if everything was a three-inch laceration? She also asked, uh, well, what if I would have just held the patient till the morning when there's a new doctor on call and uh, there was the potential risk, therefore, of this appendix uh, rupturing or any kind of delay associated with that of, you know, I was concerned about that. That was an option, but I was also um who knows what was going to happen in the interim yeah so. i think I, I i i give my sympathy to our doc who's involved in this uh one thing for sure is if you're going to be in emergency medicine have a nice relationship with some of your uh many of your attendings as possible simply because what works, what you can work out is kind of what you can do sometimes. And uh, believe me, I've started many a conversation with, with, sorry, I have to do this to you, but, you know, you're doing this one for God. Uh, (laughs) Do they have any money? No. Will you ever get paid? No. But you're coming in to see them. I know you are because you're a great doc and a great person. And, you know, I owe you. But, We've all worked out uh, situations or tried to work out situations. Are they technically the best? Always no, but you you try and and keep peace and keep the system running. All right, let's uh, have a little wine of the month there, Chief. Is it that time already? It is that that time. It is that time. I got I got other I got other people who've written, but uh, all right. Uh, we'll do wine of the month, um, a little longer wine of the month. This past couple weeks, uh, we did our EMA course, our final EMA course for the year in New York. And uh, it was terrific, by the way, Rick. We had uh, all of our old friends from Australia and everybody showed up. Anyway, the entire faculty was invited to the home of a, a great physician, I will not. I have not asked for his permission to use his name, but he and his wife are uh, Lebanese. They speak four languages. Uh, she's a master chef from L'Ecole de Gastronomique in Paris. They did this fabulous dinner, so uh, including poetry readings and and you know Invictus, all that sort of stuff. As we're drinking the great wines, he's pouring for me, and he he knows I have an interest and said, what do you drink on a day-to-day basis? And I mentioned a wine, which we we talked about here, 
uh, about six months ago. We were talking about wines for Christmas. And I mentioned Duckhorn from California, and he smiled and said, my choice to go to when it's, you know, family, friends, something smaller. So for all of you who listen to Wine of the Month, the California Duckhorn Cabernet is approved by a guy who also has the great French wines in his cellar. Now, he was not going to serve Duckhorn because Jerry Hoffman was there. I mean, you don't serve Duckhorn to Jerry Hoffman. But uh, I'll tell you, I, I was so happy to see that he was that way. Uh, next, uh, Walmart announced two weeks ago it is signed contracts with vintners in California, Oregon, Italy, and France. They're going to take on Rick's favorite store, Costco. So uh, Costco, as you all know, is the is the largest distributor of wine in the United States at this time. Uh, Walmart is is getting into the uh, getting into the thing, getting into the fray, and so expect it to be coming. And lastly, the wine. I'm I'm going to speak to a winery as opposed to just one of their wines. It's called Bedrock Wine Company. It's California. Uh, Again, it's one of those, uh, and and the bed the bedrock um, uh, wines, the the cabernets, that sort of thing, are as good as you can get. They're fantastic wines, and they're that two notches down in price that you can afford to sit down, open a bottle, and drink it with your friends. This is more in the thirty-five, forty-dollar range, not this hundred-dollar kind of range. So I'm recommending the Bedrock Wine Company, which is located in, I think it's uh, either Napa or Sonoma. So there's Wine of the Month, Rick. Okay, Gregory. I think that uh, that's the wrap-up of uh, July. Thanks for being with us today, and uh, we'll talk with you next time. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.